You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open up our Bibles to the reading for this morning. 1 Samuel 15, verse 10 to 16, verse 5. In the verses preceding our reading, Saul had attacked the Amalekites, but his army spared Agag, along with the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs. Saul had been disobedient to the command of the Lord to destroy everything and everyone. So at verse 10, listen to God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Saul said to Samuel, I I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, the one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. And Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. The text this morning continues with what we were just reading, verses 6 to 13 of 1 Samuel 16. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. 
So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, at some point or other in our lives, many of us have experienced rejection. Perhaps it was the job you wanted so badly. Perhaps it was the boyfriend or girlfriend that dumped you. Maybe the in-crowd, the cool people who wanted nothing to do with you and saw you as the ultimate loser. Many of you can add your own experiences, I'm sure. Rejection happens all the time. It's a regular feature of human existence. And rejection is never easy to take. 1 Samuel chapter 15 describes to us how Saul was rejected from being king over Israel. And as you can see in what we read, Saul didn't take this too well. And why was Saul rejected? It's because he stubbornly, he proudly rejected the Word of God. In his pride and in his arrogance, he thought his way was better than God's way. Didn't want to listen to what God had to say. So God cast him off and rejected him. Samuel said to him in verse 26, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Not only that, but Saul was also told that the kingdom had been torn from him and given to someone else. Not his son Jonathan, which is what you might expect, but instead one of his neighbors, one better than him. Who could that person be? And that's what we find out in chapter 16 and in our text. This morning I preached to you God's Word with the theme, God chooses His anointed in His way. We'll see that in His choosing, He looks at the heart, uses the lowly, and He gives strength through His Spirit. Our text speaks about two things, basically. In the first place, we read about God choosing someone. When all those sons of Jesse come in front of Samuel, Samuel says each time, the Lord has not chosen this one. The second thing the passage talks about is God's anointed. So put those two things together. God is choosing His anointed. That's why when the first son of Jesse comes in front of Samuel, Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Of course, to be anointed means that you would have olive oil poured on your head. And that would symbolize that you'd been set aside by God for a special task. Usually, priests, kings, and sometimes also prophets would be given their offices or their their jobs by anointing with olive oil. In this case, it's pretty clear that God is looking for someone to anoint as king, someone to replace Saul, whom he rejected. God is looking for, you could say, his Messiah. You may remember that that's 
what Messiah means. Usually we, we use it to refer to Christ, but Messiah by itself means simply the one anointed by God. It can refer also to someone like David, who had been anointed by God. So God is choosing His anointed, His Messiah. Specifically, He's choosing the king who would rule over His special people, Israel. And the way that He does that is very special. If we were going to choose a king for ourselves today, we would probably not do it the way that God did it here. When there are elections in Canada or in the U.S., you know, a couple of weeks ago, there were midterm elections in the state, so it's a little bit fresh in our minds. When there are elections, quite often the people get in who can talk the best talk. The ones who are charismatic. The ones who can look really good in front of a TV camera. Usually, elections in our culture are not really about who has the best campaign platform. It's mostly about appearance rather than about substance. However, our text tells us that that's not the way God looks at things when He chooses His anointed. Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, came in front of Samuel as the sacrifice was about to start. Samuel took one look at him, eyed him up and down, and figured that this must be the man. This must be the one God wants to be king. We learn from chapter 17 that he was the oldest son. It only made sense to Samuel that God would choose the oldest. And not only was he the oldest, he was also tall and he was good looking. We can assume that also from God's response to Samuel in verse 7. God says to Samuel basically, don't look at those things. I don't care that he's the oldest. I don't care that he's the best looking or the tallest. I have rejected him. He's not the one that God wants to be king over the people of Israel. Now Samuel had it all wrong. He thought that appearances would have been most important. But he finds out there in verse 7 that God's standards are not the same as those of people. People look at the outward appearance. It's very important to them. But people are not God. They can't look inside a person and they can't see what lives deep inside there. They can't see whether a person does a good deed because he loves that other person or because he wants everybody else to see how good he is. People often also don't want to look at anything other than the outward appearance. It's so much easier to assess somebody else by just looking at what you see or maybe what you heard rather than by actually going to that person and talking to them and trying to find out a little bit more. Isn't it true that by nature we're uncharitable? We don't try to think the best of other people. Many times we we're inclined to think the worst. And sometimes we get a lot of pleasure from doing that. Pleasure in thinking the worst and, and then not just keeping it to ourselves, but then spreading it around and dwelling on it incessantly. Isn't that the way we are? 
Human beings are creatures. So they're limited in how they can look at somebody else. But we're also sinners. And our sinfulness means that we often look at the outward appearance only, and then we do that in an unloving and uncharitable way. Well, we learn from our text that God is different. God looks at the heart. He knows what lives inside a person. He knew where the heart of Saul was. He knew that in his heart, Saul had become puffed up. He'd been filled with pride and rebellious and arrogant. But God also knew where the heart of David was. He knew that His Holy Spirit had been at work in David's life, producing fruits of faith and repentance. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that David was a man of faith. Look only at the next chapter and how David killed Goliath. One little stone. He did that in faith, trusting in God. But that wasn't because David himself was so great. God had given him that strong faith. And so when God says that He looks at the heart, it means that He looks for His own work. He doesn't look to see how good someone is on their own, what kind of virtues they have by nature. He rather looks to see whether His Holy Spirit has been working in that person's life to give them faith and the fruits of faith. God looks to the heart and not to outward appearances when He chooses His anointed. So perhaps you're wondering why the text tells us that David was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Basically, the text is telling us that he was a good-looking man. Ruddy means that he had red hair and he had a reddish complexion. A lot of pictures we see of King David don't fit that, but he had red hair, reddish complexion. And that was a feature considered to be particularly attractive among the Jews in Bible times. So why are we told this? Well, the explanation is that people considered it, people considered it important for their king to be a handsome and respectable looking man. The people didn't want an ugly king. God knew that when he chose David. But that wasn't the most important thing for God. God, first of all, looked to his heart. And God saw that it was a heart that loved him. The fact that David was good-looking was gravy. It was an extra to help the people to love David and to, to listen to him, to follow him into battle and so forth. God's Messiah not only had a right heart, but he also had the good looks so he could be an effective king in his kingdom here on earth. But of course, there is another Messiah spoken of in the Bible. And we've mentioned already that Messiah is our Lord Jesus Christ. He was also anointed by God to be king. In some ways, he was the same, but better than David. And in other ways, he was totally different. He was the same. 
and that he was also a man after God's own heart. His heart was right with God. But totally. David was still a sinner. Even though he had been filled up with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lived with him in power. David was still a sinner. He did many terrible things, and you can read about them in Scripture elsewhere. But the Lord Jesus was always perfect. He never once failed to keep God's commandments. He was perfect in a way that David never could be. Saul had failed. But David also had his failures. Christ would never fail. There are also other ways in which he was different than David. David was handsome and good-looking. We read in Isaiah 53 that the Lord Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. There was nothing special, nothing at all special about the way that the Lord Jesus looked that would have made us think that He is a king. As part of His humiliation, our Savior did not look the part of a king. That was because it was God's plan for Him to be rejected, for Him to be despised by men, not accepted by them. He would be rejected and despised so that He would hang on the cross for our sins. If He had looked the part, perhaps the people might not have been so eager to put Him to death. Hard to put a good-looking man on a cross. But He did suffer. And He did die. Why? So that God would never reject us. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, then the Lord looks at our hearts and He sees what He has placed there. He sees the faith that He has worked with His Spirit. He sees that faith embracing Jesus Christ and all His merits and all His benefits. And He accepts us. Because of our union with Christ, wonder of wonders, He looks at our hearts and He sees the heart of His own Son. Isn't that amazing? Brothers and sisters, Beloved, that's great news. Because of what the Lord Jesus did for us, we can be on friendly terms with a holy God. Because of Christ, we are truly men and women after God's own heart. Referring back to the Old Testament, Paul wrote in Romans 15.4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And we see this teaching character of our text in the fact that in the Hebrew Old Testament, 1 Samuel was categorized as a prophetic book. In many of our English Bibles, if you have categories at the, at the front of your Bible in your table of contents, 1 Samuel might be listed as a historical book. 
Tells us all kinds of history. But for the Jews, it was different. It was always categorized as prophecy. They regarded it as prophetic. And prophetic means that it's meant to teach us. That it's meant to transform our lives. That's what Old Testament prophecy was all about. Teaching and transformation. And in this instance, this passage points us to Christ our Savior and our union with Him through faith worked by the Holy Spirit. You could say that it refers to the indicative of the Gospel. What Christ has done. But it also goes beyond that to the imperative to teach us our thankful response to the Gospel. And thus, our text teaches those who are in Christ that we will be charitable and that we will be loving towards those around us. We want to get beyond appearances and we want to to try and see God's work in our brothers and sisters. Though we're limited, hemmed in by, by being people with the Holy Spirit, we too, we can see God's work changing and transforming the hearts of others. Why is that? Well, because what's in the heart, it can be exposed. If I speak, or if I act honestly, I can tell you. I can show you what's in my heart. I can tell or show you what only God and I know about what lives in me. But whether you believe it or not is a matter of your living out of your union with Jesus Christ. Let's now turn to our second point where we consider that in his choosing he uses the lowly. Samuel has all the seven sons of Jesse parade in front of him. And with every single one of them, the answer is the same. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Seven sons. Yeah, seven. That seems like a good round number, even a, a biblical number, a number of wholeness. Right? This must be all of them. What if there was one more? Number eight. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all of them? Now you can imagine Jesse standing there being a little bit embarrassed. Well, you know, there's still the youngest, but you don't want him. He's out with the sheep in the field, in the pasture. But surely you wouldn't be interested in him. After all, you know, he's the youngest. From all this, it does appear that Samuel had told Jesse about his intentions. At the very least, it was clear that one of Jesse's sons was being selected for an important task for God. Jesse could be standing there and he could be thinking to himself, well, you know, it wouldn't be for a priest. Because me and my family, we come from the tribe of Judah. We're not from the tribe of Levi. All the priests come from Levi. And for prophets, well, very few prophets were anointed. It did happen, but not very often. So likely not for a prophet. What do you got left? Well, the conclusion would have been obvious. God was looking for a new king to replace Saul, who was on his way down. And Jesse sloughs Samuel off. 
You wouldn't want my, my youngest son to be the king of Israel. That'd be ridiculous. Even right now, he's out there with the sheep. He's doing that, that dirty, rotten work. Kind of stinks right now. But Samuel is insistent. You have to call him in. You have to. We're not going to sit down to have the sacrificial meal until he gets here. In other words, you better get him right now or we're going to be here all day. So Jesse relents, tells his servants to go get David, and David is brought in. And it's right away clear that this is the one whom God wants to be king. The youngest son of Jesse. A shepherd. Someone known to be involved with animals that don't always smell very nice. That was going to be the king of Israel. Hardly seems possible. But yet, this was God's choice. Happens more often that this is the way that God works. When He makes His choice, He uses the lowly. You can look back to see how Saul was chosen as king in 1 Samuel 9. When Samuel tells Saul that he is going to be king, Saul answers, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? So with Saul too, there were humble beginnings. Of course, later on, this turned out in a wrong way. Saul's pride got the better of him. With our text, we find something old, but we also find something new. The old thing is that God continues to use the humble and lowly, the youngest son who's a shepherd boy. The new thing is that the kingship is being passed from the tribe of Judah to the tribe of Benjamin. That's the way things were going to happen according to the words of Jacob in Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. Now the tribe of Judah is being handed the ruler's staff, the scepter. And it's being done in God's way. God chooses His anointed from the lowly. David begins as a shepherd boy, and it's only later in his life that he is exalted and he becomes a glorious king. The youngest son of Jesse will be exalted over all his brothers. That's how it was with the Messiah. God's anointed in 1 Samuel 16. Later, many years later, another king would be born in the tribe of Judah. That king was born in a manger among the animals. He wasn't born in a palace. People tried to kill him as soon as he made his entrance into this world. His whole life was one of suffering and being hounded by his enemies, including Satan himself. He died in a humiliating way, like a common criminal hanging on a cross, the most shameful way that anyone could die in that time. But the story didn't stop there. The wonderful thing is that God also exalted this king and He lifted him up. He rose from the dead and He ascended into heaven. The glorified Christ now sits at God's right hand. He had lowly beginnings. 
But now He reigns in glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Philippians 2, 8-9, we read that He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. That's our Lord Jesus. Wonderful Savior that He is. You see, that's how God works. God doesn't take those who, who think highly of themselves. I think what the Lord Jesus said too. He said, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save sinners. God doesn't take those who make much of themselves. God isn't agreeable with those who are high and mighty in their own eyes. The theology of glory, if we can call it that, has been copyrighted by the world. It's off limits for God. And God won't go there. He won't have anything to do with it. We read about a different kind of theology, a theology of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That goes for the anointing of David as king. And we see it illustrated most poignantly in Christ's kingship. But you know what? It's also something that has to be for us who share Christ's anointing and who have union with Him by faith. Like David and more importantly, like David's great son, we need an attitude of faith and submission. Humility. You know, that's sometimes tough for us to learn, isn't it? Especially if you've been a Christian for many, many years, hardly anyone wants to admit that they still have much to learn. That there's still so much progress to be made. Isn't it true that sometimes we can be so unteachable? That's why the book of Proverbs tells us in 9 verse 9, Instruct the wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Being teachable, being open to correction, that's an essential part of being humble and lowly. We have to realize that there is always room for growth in the life of a Christian. What does it say in James 4, verse 6? Again, quoting another proverb, and this is repeated several times in the Bible, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why God rejected Saul and chose David. He looked into David's heart, and he saw a heart that was humble and faithful. He wants to see the same thing in our hearts. But as we heard earlier, it's not like this comes out of ourselves. We'll see that in more detail in the third point as we consider that in His choosing, God gives strength with His Spirit. After the Lord had commanded him to do so, Samuel took his olive oil in that horn Right? And he poured it on the head of David. And we're not told whether David himself realized the importance or meaning of what was happening. 
we can probably guess that he did. The text does say that this happened in the presence of all his brothers. They all saw it. And it appears that they knew what was happening. And from the, the next chapter, it seems that they had a hard time accepting it. They thought David was arrogant and conceited. Likely they were jealous because he was chosen to be king instead of them. So David would not have had an easy time growing up in the house of Jesse as he continued to live there. His brothers were nasty to him. Further, it wasn't clear how how was he going to become the king of Israel? How was he going to take that throne? Because Saul wasn't about to leave that throne anytime soon. David had to be patient and he had to wait. And he was. He could be. Because when God chose him to be the king, he also blessed him in a special way with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in verse 13 of our text. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now that doesn't mean that David didn't have the Holy Spirit working in him before this. You might think that this is David's you know, first introduction to the Holy Spirit. But that's not the case. It's quite clear that God had been working with David for a long time. And God does that through His Holy Spirit. No one can have faith in God or in Jesus Christ. No one can embrace the promises of God without the Holy Spirit. What our text means is that God gave David the strength of His Spirit for a special task, preparing him to be the king of Israel. We should also notice that it says, from that day on, This tells us that the Holy Spirit was with David in this special way permanently. It wasn't just temporarily, as happened with Saul or Samson. The Holy Spirit stayed with David from this point on and gave him strength. David needed this strength because there was much suffering and there was much waiting ahead of him. He had to walk the path of suffering. Surely you remember of how many times Saul tried to kill David, taking the spear and throwing it at him a number of times, sending people after him to kill him. David was hunted down like a wild animal. He had to hide in caves and run like a fugitive. It wasn't easy for him. But he was chosen to be king. He was promised a throne and God would keep His promise. He gave David the strength to wait for that throne. The same Holy Spirit did the same work in David's great son. Through 33 years of humiliation, through 33 years of suffering, the Lord Jesus patiently went about the work His Father had given Him to do. He patiently waited for the throne. At the end of it all, he was given a throne in heaven at his Father's right hand. You know, Christians have also been promised a throne with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Bible promises us that we too shall one day reign with King Jesus. Imagine that. So what we read in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. That's what we have to look forward to. Glorious good news. But the road to the throne is not paved with gold and with silver and, and with diamonds. That's not what the road looks like. It's a rough road to the throne. And that road is filled with potholes and washboards and mud. Sometimes God brings difficulties into our lives that challenge our faith in the Lord Jesus. Sometimes people mock you, make fun of you because you're a Christian, because you want to live like it. Sometimes even your family, if they aren't believers or perhaps if they're not serious about their faith, they too, they can make it hard on you. But when that happens, the good news is that God is there. God gives strength with His Holy Spirit. Just like David, we have the Holy Spirit in a very special way. From Pentecost forward, He has been poured out on all of God's people to give them the strength for the job that God has given them. Through the fulfillment of Christ's promises, believers always have this special strength of the Holy Spirit, just like David did. So even when that road to the throne, when that road is rough, we can trust that the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ will keep us safe on the road. You, know, you can think of those beautiful words from God to His people in Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Beautiful promises, aren't they? Promises that are for you, God's beloved people. And by now, you can see that God's ways are so different. They're not our ways. God is God. He has the strength and the power to keep us safe. He has a hand of power and a heart of love. If it was left up to us, relying on our instincts and our what comes to us by nature. We'd be in the ditch on that road. In the ditch, up to our necks in water, and there would be nobody to pull us out. But that's not where we are. God gives strength to stay on the road to glory. He gives that strength to those whose lives have been transformed by His sovereign grace and mercy to you. He gives that to those who are in union with Christ by faith to you. He gives it to the lowly. He gives it to those who know they need His strength and they depend entirely on Him and lean on Him for everything. He has mercy upon those who humble themselves before Him in true faith and repentance. Those who hate their sins, who weep over them and desire to fight against them. 
God looks into those humble hearts. He sees the work that He has done and He is there for them. That's the way God worked when He chose David to be king. That's the way God worked when He gave His only beloved Son to die for sinners like you and me. That's the way God works today for us. His ways are excellent. Past finding out. We should praise Him for His ways. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.